Let's pray and just see what the Lord has to share tonight. Father, it's very easy for us to come into your presence every time we're able to meet together as believers and forget that we all have a part to play and a role that we must share in the body of Christ. And Lord, I just ask that you would use me tonight, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would speak directly to the hearts of every single person in this room, or that not one would be left without something directly from your presence, Lord. Father, I can only speak in mere words, but your Holy Spirit can just enlighten our hearts to truths we haven't seen before, or even things that maybe I don't even say, Lord, but your Holy Spirit quickens to our hearts. Father, I just ask that your words would be what is shared and nothing else, Lord, that what I say has nothing to do with opinion, but upon your word, Lord. We thank you that you are the truth, and we just pray, Father, that we would be open to hear your word, myself especially. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, some of you have probably heard parts of this message before. I think Miss Hamilton has heard some parts of this because I shared it, portions of this in... Um, Richmond when Meg and I were there. My desire is to share a message and then if we have time and y'all want to, I can share a few things from Guatemala and if and of course I'll interject a few things in the message that we've learned that really apply to what I have seen. So um, I want us to look in Jeremiah 6 please tonight and verse 16. It's easy, we think about Jeremiah and we think, man, he was such a courageous guy. Um, I mean, he, he must have had it easy. But we forget that he was going against an entire generation of people who had turned away from God. An entire generation that had found some different place to go than God. And if you think back to Jeremiah 1, you know, we, we know this passage, and I'll just read it really quick. Verse, chapter 1, verse 5, it says, speaking of Jeremiah, it says, The word of the Lord came to me and said, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you, and I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, because I'm a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say I'm a youth because everywhere I send you, you shall go. And all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver them, deliver you. And he, later on he says, Behold, I've put my words in your mouth. And that's my desire tonight in relation to those who've gone before us. I'm just a young person. To some of you young people, I'm an old person. Um... <laughs> um but I do believe that God has given me a word and that he did form me in the womb, despite what our nation relegates as not life. I was reading a stat today that honestly shocked me, that average year 
five million babies would come to life, but out of those, one-fifth are murdered. And to think that, honestly, many times we see passages like this and we don't think of all the lives that were destroyed because the church forgot to pray. The church, honestly, has accepted the world around us in Less than 50 years, our nation has murdered over 60, nearly 60 million unborn babies. I say that because many people think that our nation has a hope outside of God, and we do not. There is no hope for this nation unless we, the church, repent and we reach the lost and the lost see Jesus. Because... You, that's just one thing. You look at the, the change in marriage. The foundation of the church, one of the foundations, singleness is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But marriage is too. How would we have families if we didn't have marriage? How would we be able to raise up our children if we didn't have that? But now we've changed the definition of that in our country. So if we think for one moment that a man or a woman or a political party can change our country, we're very, we're as, as lost as these people in the book of Jeremiah. I mean, many times these kings said, well, I can change something, but that's not the hope. So I want to look at verse 6 and find out what is the answer. What is, what's really going to save us, the world, and maybe if we really seek God and cry out to God to have mercy on our nation, our God might relent, as it says in the book of Joel. It says, verse 16, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. The sad part is, but they said, we will not walk in it. I pray that tonight that will not be our answer. Because that word, ancient, it's a Hebrew word, which is olam. It's, I don't know if I pronounced it right, but that's not important. But it, that word means something that's continuous. It doesn't have a beginning and it doesn't have an end. It's a forever and everlasting path. There are many ancient paths around us. But many times we look to ourselves. If, we, if you want to turn to Psalm 139, verse 24, there's a lot of scriptures tonight. I won't apologize because they're more powerful than anything I could come up with because the Holy Spirit can quicken our hearts. Psalm 139, verse 24. It says, And see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This word everlasting is the same word, same Hebrew word for ancient. That's, it's not just, that's the, the condition that we must remember is that this path that he's talking about is not just some 
old path because many people would go, well, let's go look at the Greek philosophers because that's a path that's been there a while and there's still people, as shocking as you may, may not know, still follow these paths and it's actually entered the church. For example, one of those ancient paths that does have an end and it had a beginning started by a man named Epicurus. I don't know if any of you have heard of him, but Epicureans believe that what, we called ple what he called pleasure was the greatest good. That was the goal. But that the way to attain such pleasure was to live modestly, to gain knowledge of the workings of the world, and to limit one's desires. This would lead one to attain a, straight, a state of tranquility and freedom from fear as well as absence of bodily pain. And this is the message that's being preached in many churches in the United States right now. But we change the word pleasure for comfort. If we're comfortable, if it doesn't hurt, then that's what we're, that's what we're, we're searching for. We're not searching, as Jake was talking about the other night, for Jesus. We're searching for a church that will make us comfortable and happy. And we might as well just shed the, the cloak of Christianity and come out and say, I'm this. I'm an Epicurean. This world has many of them. But the problem is they have no basis because their basis is man, not God. There is another um, thought process that has really set, has been combined in the church and it's uh, Stoicism. I don't know if any of you have heard of this, but essentially it teaches that by self-control we can achieve a happy life. That by controlling our emotions, that by not showing emotion, then we have achieved the greatest goal. But all of this is for one purpose, pleasure. All philosophies that are not based on God's Word have big problems because they're based on the times and the humans that live in those times. We decide what is pleasure or what is good based on what's around us instead of an absolute. So it says again that we must not just stand and ask for the old path. That's, a, that's good. We need to find out which path. But we need to ask for the good way. Where is the good way? Because, again, there's many paths that are old, and they're still being followed today, but there's only one that really answers all of life question, life's questions. If you look in Matthew 19, verse 17, it says, just in case you were wondering how we come up to what is good, it says here, and Jesus was talking, he said unto him, Why call you me good? There is none good but one, that is God. If you will enter into life, keep the commandments. And this was, I believe this is where he's talking to the rich young ruler. I mean, he, he was probably Epicurean because he had lived, he had followed all the laws, he was a good, he had, or even Stoic, I don't know. But he had self-control, 
But one thing he still loved. Something was more important. So if these two that I've mentioned aren't the way, then what is? And we can see that in John 14, verse 6. We all know this passage. It's not like what I'm about to read is a surprise because we all know that where this is going. But the problem is we know this, but many of us forget. It says in verse, John 14, verse 6, And Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Unfortunately, we've tried to add to that. We think, well, if I clean up my life, if I do some things first, then God will accept me. Well, I want to read you a quick story from a book that I've been reading. It's called By Faith. It's really good. Um, and I'll just read it. It says, so this man, his name is Mr. Frost, he was preaching a message, and it happened to be in a, I think it was in a bar. This is back in the late 1890s. And it says, So I continue, but the gift of God, quoting scripture, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then I asked him, this, this drunkard who he was talking to, what we have to do in order to get a gift. And he said, take it. At this, I urged him to take the gift of God, but he refused, telling me that he was drunk. In vain, I urged him that this was just the reason why he should accept the salvation of Christ offered. No, he would not. He would go to his room, he said, get out his Bible, read it, kneel down and pray, get sobered up and come the next night and get saved. So what was he going to do? Go back home, get cleaned up and come back the next night. He was going to try to clean himself up so God would accept him. And it says, Poor fellow, I replied, you mean well, but let me tell you, you will do nothing of the kind. You will turn into the first saloon you come to. And he answered me that he would not. He would go down a street, down a back street, and do, his act, do exactly as he had promised. So he went out into the dark unsaved. I was not able to be at this mission where he was working the next evening, but the following night I was there. As I took my place on the platform, I looked for my tall friend. Sure enough, there he was, just where he had sat two nights previously. After the meeting, I went to him immediately. Seating myself beside him, I asked him if he had come the night before. He said he had. I saw, however, that he was even more drunk than when I first had last met him. Did you go into the first saloon you came to? I questioned. No, he answered. It was closed. I went into the second. <laughs> well, now, I replied, what about tonight? Looking at me earnestly, he said, Mister, I'll never go out of this place till I'm saved. Thank God, I exclaimed. Then it will be easy. Unfortunately, we're trying to teach a message where you clean up and unfortunately, there aren't many men like this anymore who preach that Jesus is the only way that our life will change. Because if we clean up, who gets the glory? We do. It's, honestly, it's a very human-centered gospel. It's not Christ-centered. So, if we've asked for the good way, if we've asked for that ancient path, and we 
we found out which one is the good way, Jesus Christ. It's clear. He says, I am the way. He doesn't say, I am one of the ways. He says, I am the way. So we know the way, the truth, but we must walk in that path. We can't just hear all the good, right things, as many have, and just sit around and act like we got it. If we don't experience the truth, if we don't experience what we've been taught, then when the hard times come, we're just going to run out the door. It says in Matthew 16, 24, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This wasn't easy. This was a call to death. You don't take up a cross to go play in the lilies in the field. You take up a cross to die. You take up a cross to go up to the top of the hill and be crucified. It's not easy. If it was easy, everybody in the world would be on it. It's just like the highway. Everyone wants to get on the, the highway because there's less traffic. But what Megan and I noticed the other day, we decided to go to Middletown on 60. And it was so much prettier and so much more enjoyable. Yes, there was traffic. Yes, we had to slow down at different parts of the, the trail, of the road, but it was, the experience was way better. And I'm not saying that it's going to be easy. Because it could have been in 60, there was an accident, and we would have been stuck for hours. But in all things... There's too many people that want the highway and they're not looking for that path that's still and everlasting. So, if we walk in that path, what happens? It says, what does it say again? Does it say you'll find hard times? Not particularly, but it says, and you shall find rest for your souls. Does that mean comfort? Not always. Except peace. You'll find peace. I'm sure of that. So we'll find rest. It says in Jeremiah 7, if we want to look there, Jeremiah 7, 3 through 5. The crucified life is the life that we are all called to. Unfortunately, oftentimes we forget that when it gets hard. We forget that God called us to suffer like Christ. If you read the book of 1 Peter, all he talks about is suffering for Christ. You remember who Peter was? The man who said that Jesus was Lord, then he denied him three times and couldn't even say that he loved him with agape love? That Peter, he, had, he understood. He finally when he was filled with the Holy Spirit, he didn't care what would happen to him. He didn't care because Jesus was everything to him. He didn't have another identity anymore. It was him and Christ, him and, and Peter crucified. It says in Jeremiah 7, 3 through 5, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Trust not in lying words, saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. 
are these. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, and skip to verse 23. But this thing command I them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. Walk in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well unto you. So, now you're saying, well, Caleb, you're, now you're telling us that we have to listen before God saves us. No, this obedience, we can't even hear him. That's the problem. We can't even hear God unless we've been saved. Unless the Holy Spirit comes and does the work, we're hopeless. Because there's a problem. Many of us have, be, have become like the first part of Jeremiah 7. We're saying, well, this is Shelbyville Christian Assembly, so I've been here for 30 years or however long. I've been here for 31 because I was pretty much born here. But um, I've been here for 10, how, you know, however long you've been here, and we've many times come to the place where we're just content to be in the right place, but we're not acting on what we're hearing. Being in the right place is great, but the Christian faith is not a faith of sitting around, feeding ourselves, and then wondering why we feel stagnant because there's no exercise of what we're learning. But we must obey. We can't, we can't just choose not to obey. But our obedience is done because we love the Lord with all of our heart. But many pro times we have a problem. It says in verse 16 to Jeremiah about these Jews who refused not only to walk in the way, but refused to listen. God said, don't even pray for them. I don't want to be that person. It's easy to just say, I want to give up. Megan and I have gone through some pretty tough times, and I know that it doesn't compare to some of the things that you all have gone through in the last year and a half. But we've been through the hardest year of our life. And in it all, many times, Megan will tell you, I wanted to quit. I wanted to walk away and just be like, this is not worth it. But in the midst of it, Jesus became more clear. And he, he reminded me of this. This fifth part of, of what I'm, honestly, the bulk of the message tonight. Because the problem is, many times we do things as Christians, but we do it to be recognized. We do it because we want to be known as something. We want a title applied to us. We want condom. We we just want you know the wall with all the Hall of Fame plaques and uh, trophies on it, saying that they're the greatest Christian that ever walked the earth. But that would be a lie because we're not looking for trophies in this earth. We don't do things because it gains us glory. It says in Jeremiah 10, verse 23. And this is truth. Absolutely, because it's the Word. 
We can't deny it. It says, O oh Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. The problem is, we're walking as though we're, we know where we're going and we haven't even sought counsel from the Lord. We've forgotten that prayer has a, has a very important role in our walk with God. We don't talk to Jesus anymore. We don't pray to the Father. And we don't even know how to hear from the Spirit. I'm, okay, I know everybody's looking at me like, wow, this is... I didn't expect this from Caleb tonight. Maybe we should go home. Okay, that's fine. I'm talking about myself, okay? If it applies to you, then it applies. I'm not going to be afraid if it offends someone because it offended me at first. You know, the goal in our life is not to bring glory to ourselves. There's another quote from this book I would like to share. It says, he's talking about something that God showed him. He said, the consummation was not foreign missions. So for Megan and I, it's not about foreign missions. It was, rather, the coming of the king and the establishment of his kingdom. At the same time, it was clear that the witness of the missionary among Jews and Gentiles was the divinely ordained means of bringing to pass that promise to end. That's what we're all here for. We're all about the kingdom. The kingdom is central to our lives because who is our king? Who is our Lord? If Jesus isn't Lord of our life, then we've totally missed it. Because if he's not the one sending down orders of service, then where are we getting our information? But we can't even get that information if we don't spend time seeking his face. It says later on in that same chapter, there could be no place in such service, the work of the kingdom, for the thought of self-sacrifice. If God would accept me to be in some measure used for the hastening of Christ's kingdom, mine would be nothing less than the highest possible privilege and honor. That's what this is about. It's the fact that God not only called me, but would allow me to further His kingdom, to reach someone who has not heard the gospel, or someone who's been deceived by a Jehovah's Witness, or a Mormon, or, or Islam, or any other religion in the world. Buddhism. They're deceived just like the world. The difference is they have a religion to their name. But many in the United States now, they have a religion and it's called self just like some in the church. We make plans. We think, well, if I get, you know, for example, when you first get saved, many times you think, well, I don't, I'm not really, I don't know what I can really share. I, I don't know that I can really share with somebody. Another quote from this book. I know I'm overusing it, but... Um, there was this young man that came to the Lord. He could barely write. He would make um, the he would do these comparisons that didn't make any sense at all. But this is what he said about this man. You know that he was always a blessing, and he says, 
this fact has often suggested to me this this man the way he God used him in his life has often suggested to me that learning is not by any means the chief factor in one's being used by the Lord in bringing blessing to souls but rather surrender to God in dependence on the Holy Spirit that doesn't mean that we shouldn't learn but we shouldn't allow lack of under, complete understanding of the Bible to keep us from sharing the gospel where God has us. And we shouldn't be stopped by fear. I want to read in James 4, because there's another problem in our boasting. We make all these plans, and you'll see James 4, 13 through 17, and we forget to bring God into it. And I'll... Again, this is something God showed me for myself. And if it applies to you, please listen. So James 4.13. It says, Go to now, you that say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanishes away. For that you ought to say is, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. However, many times we don't ask nor care to know the Lord's will. And I was really convicted when Dr. Ware was here by what he said. Jesus was always about the Father's will. What are we doing? Are we really, do we wake up every morning and say, Father, your will be done in my life. No matter what plans I have, I want you to direct my steps. Sometimes saying the prayer is a lot easier than acting it out. So back to verse 16. It says, But now you, rejoicing in your boastings, all such rejoicing is evil. We're boasting, oh, I'm going to go... Like a, a certain pro basketball player, I'm going to go and win a championship. No one knows who that is. Um, or a certain quarterback. We're going to be great this year. We're going to win the whole thing. But that's the thing. We can go around boasting, but we don't even know if we're going to win the first game, much less the championship game. We don't even know we can make it to the playoffs. But we as Christians, we're running around boasting about what we've done for the Lord, and we forget what He's done for us. And that's what I, my main goal tonight is to remind us. Because we've forgotten. I can see it on some faces here even. When we worship, it's like ho-hum. And the thing is, I'm not saying something new. I remember multiple times Mr. Hamilton talking about the person going, mm, like barely being able to speak praises to the Lord. And it bothers me. Because if we remember who we, are, who we were and what Christ did, how can we even 
begin to boast in ourselves? How can we even begin to rejoice in our own accomplishments? Because it says in verse 17, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him it is sin. Unfortunately, we only hear that quote when it's other sins. We never think about running around boasting or prideful. You know, it says in Proverbs 21, verse 2, Every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord ponders the hearts. He knows if we're doing things, even sometimes when we don't even understand. Sometimes we do things for our own glory, and we don't realize until God opens our eyes. We don't realize that we're seeking fame in the church, or, oh, look at, for example, Megan and I. Oh, look at Caleb, and they, they've been in Guatemala for a year. Who cares? I'm honest with you. You don't want to go to Guatemala if you don't, aren't called. And you don't need to leave this church to go out unless you know, but I also know that where you are is your mission field. And to not ignore the call of God. We're all Christians. That's the key. We're all called to be missionaries. The question is, does it mean here or somewhere else? The Christian religion was a missionary religion. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, propagated by wars like Islam. It was propagated by martyrs who died loving Jesus Christ with their entire life, suffering even unto death. It says in so, uh, Psalm 37, verse 5, Commit your way unto the Lord, trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. It all goes back to prayer. If we truly desire to see God's will done, it has to be through prayer. We can't ignore it. Megan and I have seen the power of prayer and the power of lack of prayer. Times when we were going through a really hard time and it was my fault because I didn't come before the Lord and really spend time with Him in prayer as the spiritual leader of our home. I'm not taking weight off of Megan, but I have a role as a husband. It says in Psalm, sorry, Proverbs 16, verse 3, Put your works into the hands of the Lord, and your purposes will be made certain. Again, I told you I have lots of verses, so some of you may not be able to to keep up, but Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto your own understanding. It says that the heart is deceitfully wicked. So we must look to the Lord because in the world we live in, we're surrounded by people who think it's okay to kill unborn children, for example. Think it's okay to, for a man and a man to be married or a woman and a woman to be married. They think it's okay that these couples adopt children. And if we're not careful, we'll start to accept it because, well, that's not very loving to tell, to tell them they're wrong. Like Jake said, silence is not love. 
Sometimes it is, but a lot of times it's not. In verse 6 it says, In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. In that case, if we are truly trusting the Lord with all our heart, and we have committed not to lean on our own intelligence, our own ability, then who gets all the glory? He does. We truly acknowledge God as who He is, the giver of all great good things. We don't get good from the devil. We don't get good from the world. We get good from God. Because He's the only good. So, how do we ensure that we do not boast in ourselves? It says in Jeremiah 17, 5 and 6, I really like this year going through Jeremiah because here Jeremiah is standing in the gap for the people of Israel. This church could stand in the gap for our nation. And honestly, we need to take advantage of the peace that we still have because you see what's going on in the streets. You can see what's going on because of all kinds of things going, everything that's going on, it's becoming chaotic. And before long, Christians will be blamed for everything. We're the homophobes that hate certain people and blah, blah, blah. And we'll be the ones thrown in prison if we choose to stand up like Jeremiah. It says, 17 verse 5 through 6, Thus says the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh, his, maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departs from the Lord. I've almost decided to trash Facebook completely because after our election, I thought the second coming of Christ had happened. And I do, I'm not saying that to disparage anyone. I'm, I'm going to pray for our president-elect because that's the only way we'll have peace. It says in the Word. But we, I have seen people that I grew up in this church with who maybe are here or not, proclaiming, treating our president-elect like God, like Jesus Christ had come back. And other friends of mine who claim Christ. I'm not saying God can't use a man, because He does, and He always does. He has. But man's not my hope. Christ Jesus is. And I didn't try to mean, I'm not trying to be political, but it really bothers me to see the church turning to man as the solution. You know what that's called? Humanism. It's a, it's a, it's a mindset that says everything's relative, that there's no absolute truth. We say, well, we set aside our convictions to say such things. There, there was a politician in New York who was Catholic. And they asked him, well, how did you... I don't know who it was, but you, everyone here probably knows Catholics have, for a long time, stood against um, homosexual marriage. And he said, well, I just put my Catholicism aside so I could vote this way. 
in an election. Is that what we're doing as brothers and sisters in Christ? I'm not talking about voting for president, but I'm just saying in our lifestyle, are we doing things, we're setting Christ aside, and we're saying, well, I'm going to do it anyways, even though I know it's wrong. I'm going to do it because it's going to help my business. You know, if I'm friends with that person, then I'll be good financially. But that person is dragging you down. It says in verse 6 of chapter 17, For he shall be like the heath in the desert, and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land, and not inhabited. This is what happens. You know there's going to be a famine of the word of God, and I don't want to be found there. I don't want to trust in man. I don't want to trust in what man says. I want to trust in God because I'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. I won't need to be crying out, God, send rain. I need an oasis because I'm in the middle of the desert. No, because I'll be planted by the stream. It won't matter what the situation says because Jesus is everything for me. So can riches save us? Anybody think riches can save us? We, we've tried man, that doesn't work. Riches, maybe? Let's see, Psalm 49, verse 6 through 8. It says, They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious, and it ceases forever. We can't even redeem our brother, much less ourselves. So riches, are, those are useless. And I'm not saying God doesn't bless us. I do believe God blesses us in this world. But those riches will never save us. If we decide to choose riches over the call of God in our life, we will fail and will become like that heath in the desert, like a tumbleweed just going everywhere looking for water, but there's no water because we're in the middle of the Sahara. And we know that there's no power in ourselves. It says in 1 Timothy 1.15, and this is the Apostle Paul. He's talking to Timothy. Apostle Paul, one of the most, considered the most intelligent men of his time, like knew the Word, knew the Old Testament, knew the law. Before he came to, to Christ, he hated everything, and he was living by the law. And this is what he said. So a man that by world standards was a great man. He was pretty good. It says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. This is talking about himself that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I mean, we, we think of chief of sinners and we think of drunken um, weed smokers or heroin addicts or someone like that. We don't think of men who just turn against God. We are all the enemies of God, it says. We were. 
the Bible says a few things to us before Christ about us. It says in Isaiah 64, 6, if you think you're like that, old, that, that drunkard, you can go home, sober up, get your Bible, pray a little bit, then come back the next night, this is what it says. But we are all as unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags. And we all do as a leaf in our iniquities, or we all do fade as a leaf in our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. There's nothing good in us. But we've forgotten that. We forgot, especially my generation. Our parents have paved the path for us. And we think, well, we're pretty good. I mean, I haven't smoked dope. I haven't done this. I haven't drank on the street. I haven't been a prostitute or whatever it may be. And we say, well, I'm pretty good. What does it say? All our righteousness are as filthy rags. That's the problem. We think that what we did as a ch young child before Christ were good things. They weren't because all good comes from God. Man cannot create goodness. Our, our righteousness, our right acts were filthy because we were doing it out of our flesh. We weren't doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the power of Christ in us. And to prove this, we're at the actual part of my message. No. <laughs> we're going to be here till midnight. Um, I hope you all brought snacks. Um, Ephesians chapter 2. This is the place where I really wanted to get, though, because this is what we must remember, brothers and sisters. If we want to have the joy of the Lord, we need to remember where we came from. Not, not saying we go back and hunt up the old memories and try to remember how bad we were. No. It's remembering, oh, we were bad. We did this. And it doesn't matter how bad it was. We're all sinners in the hands of an angry God if He doesn't come and do something. It says in verse 1, and I'm going to read, uh, I'll change it just a little bit because I know most of you have King James Version, but um, so I'll read it and I'll explain why. why Verse 1, it says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. Hath he quickened, in some translations, is not there. And I'm not sure why. I'll have to ask John someday. But I think it's, for the, the moment, we can just say, And you who were dead in trespasses and, sin it, and sins. So, question. How many people in this room were dead in trespasses and sin it, sins? I don't see everybody's hand raised. There's a problem. Um, are you still dead? If your hand didn't raise, then maybe you're still dead. So, have you seen a dead man clean a house? Anyone? Come on. Surely one of us has seen a dead man sweeping the house out. What about painting their house? I mean, he wanted to clean it up a little bit. Um, what about cleaning... Working out in the yard. Building a house. A dead man can't do anything. And yet we're running around as Christians acting like we came, we struggled ourselves out of the pit of despair. No, we were dead. I mean, lock and key on the coffin dead. 
mean, they had us in one of those vaults so that you, the worms can't get in. And we say, well, um, that's what we forget. It doesn't matter how wicked in worldly sense you were. In God's eyes, we all were equally wicked. We hated God. It says in verse 2, where in time past you walked according to the course of this world. This word course can be translated current. We were like just all the other fishes headed straight to hell. We didn't know that the current was leading to a giant waterfall that dried up by the time you hit the bottom. So we used to, some of us, some, of, some people in this room are still dead. There's some who are still choosing the world over God. So we did this according, it says in verse 2, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. We were these people. We weren't just children didn't know what to do, innocent. We were the children of disobedience. We loved to disobey. Anyone that has kids knows what it's like. They may be a good kid, but they still love to disobey. They still love to test the limits. I mean, not even the sweetest one in this room can say, the sweetest little child, I, I've never wanted to disobey my parents. Sometimes we didn't even understand it. Like, why in the world would, would we do that? Because we know we're going to get cookies later, but, man, I just had to have the cookie right away because Mom said I couldn't. You know? It says in verse 3, Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh. This word conversation is more our actions, our our way of living. So we just followed whatever we wanted to. We did what we wanted, but we didn't realize we were slaves to sin. We couldn't follow Christ. It says that in Romans, that we were slaves. I mean, chains. It's like if I went out and hooked myself up to a car and the car's name was sin, I'm going where that car is going. Why? Because I can't beat the car. The car has way more power than I do. And that's the thing. Sin has complete control over those who are not found, who are still lost, who haven't found the hope of the world, the hope that we all need, the way that is only in Jesus Christ. It says, we were fulfilling the desires of, a, of the flesh, verse 3, and of the mind. So we would conceive all these things in our own ability, in our flesh. And it says, and we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Our nature was bent on going to hell. We wanted in our flesh to go to hell, despite what we think. Because 
as children of wrath, we aren't just, oh, they were innocent, because this, this is a part of humanism. We think, well, we want to go save those people because they're poor, they don't have running water, they don't have this or that. Those people need salvation because they're lost. Just like the richest person in this world, if they're lost, who cares if they have money? It doesn't matter. The fluency of a person does not determine whether we want to love them or not. We don't just love the poor, even though that's great. We don't just love those who are middle class. We don't just love those who are rich or the stars. I mean, how many people have, have heard a story of a, uh, a star coming to Christ? Maybe because too many people are afraid to share the gospel. They're too afraid to get kicked out of that person's entourage. Or they want to be a groupie of that band still. But the thing is, as children of wrath, we're not just being trained. That's the problem. We're not just being trained to be children. We're being trained to disobey God. Just like children of disobedience. We're being trained to disobey God. And what does that make us if we disobey God? Enemies of God. That's why what Christ did on the cross is the perfect picture of loving your enemy. We were his enemies. We were standing at the broad on the cross laughing, essentially, our sins. Our sins sent him to the cross because we were his enemies. But that's the thing. That's all bad news. I mean, so far, no good news for anybody here, right? So far, it's, man, Caleb, you're pretty hard tonight. Well, what happened? What happened? Verse 4, but God, okay, time out. Does it say, but Caleb? No. But Brett? No. But Nate? No, it didn't say any of those names. It says, but God, who is rich in mercy. Now, when we think rich, we think money. When God says rich, he's talking about an infinite value. A value that doesn't have a number attached to it. All of you know what the, the sign of infinity is, right? It's a circle, looks like an eight, but on the side. That's because it's a value that you can't count. And that's what his mercy was to us. It was of in, infinite value. And it didn't end. You look at the Old Testament and the people of Israel. Man, hundreds of years of disobedience and God kept sending people to them. He kept sending people to tell them, I love you, change. I love you, follow me. Maybe tonight God is calling you back to Himself. Or to Himself for the first time. Because it's for His great love, wherewith He loved us. He did it because He loved, not because we deserved it. It didn't say, because of your works. It was all God. You can just read Ezekiel 36, 25-27. Every time, it doesn't once mention that we did anything. It says, I will do I will do. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to follow me. What boast do I have in that? Nothing. 
It's all His mercy and grace. It says in verse 5, even when we were dead in sins, again, He's reminding us, just in case you forgot, you were dead. Or if you are still dead, you're dead. Hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved. Many times we forget that. We forget what Christ did. That's the problem many times when we lose our joy. When the hard times come and we lose our joy, we forget where we came from, what we were, that we were the enemies of God. It doesn't matter how sweet you are in this room. If you're lost, you're the enemy of God. You can be an enemy of God and be the sweetest-faced person in this room. I don't think I was ever called sweet-faced, but... <laughs> you can be the most honorary-faced person in this room and still be an enemy of God. So, He came to us in His mercy because He loved us, quickened us. What does that word quicken mean? This is supernatural. He gives us life. We were dead. He gives us new life. We're born again, truly. And He didn't just leave us there. He didn't say, here's new life. Go live it spiritually. No, because He knew what happened with Adam and Eve? He had a plan. It says, And He has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. So we went from being the enemies of God, trained to fight the kingdom of heaven, and now we're sitting in the throne room of the King of kings and Lord of lords. We're in the same place as Jesus Christ. He came as a conqueror and was victorious over the world. But he, unlike most rulers, when they conquer a region, he didn't make us live in pits of despair, throw us in prison, or, you know, the POW. That's not where we were. He, he brought us to his own kingdom. seated us in heavenly places. Why? Why? Verse 7. That in ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. We are, brothers and sisters, we are a picture of His exceeding riches of grace. When people see us, they should see God's grace in Jesus Christ. Because grace has saved us. Grace has changed who we were and who we are. By the power of the Holy Spirit and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It says in verse 8, By His or for by grace you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. I know many um, religions would like to take, cults especially, would like to take this scripture out of the Bible because then they can't 
enforce legalism. They can't enforce that you have to earn your salvation. Because this makes it clear that God wants to show forth His grace through faith that is given by the Holy Spirit to us. And this faith, this, that's the thing. There's a, a quote by uh, Henry Hudson, or Hudson Taylor, sorry. And he says, it's not about how great our faith is. It is how our faith is in a great God. That's the key. It's not about, oh, wow, Caleb's a great man of faith. No. If I choose to trust the great God, if I see God for who He is, the greatness, infinite value of God in Christ Jesus, then that's faith. That's why it says a grain of mustard seed. If you haven't seen one, it's tiny. And that's why we must believe in the great God and not in our own faith. Our faith comes from the Lord and we just trust in the God of the Bible. But this is not of ourselves. That's, we have to remember. We, you look back, our works were filthy rags. We didn't do it because we wanted to. It says in Romans that we hated God. That we weren't even looking for God. It's a gift of God. Why? Verse 9, it says, Not of works, lest any man should boast. Then why am I running around boasting about what I've done for the Lord? I shouldn't be. I shouldn't be running around, Oh, we had a campaign the other night and we had 150 people saved. I'm not saying we don't want to know about these people, but it wasn't about me. It was about Him. It's about God saving souls who were headed straight to hell. And it's for His glory. It's not about some ministry that Caleb has or anyone else. It says in verse 10, this is, this honestly, you know, so many people say, well, why, then why, if it's all of grace, because many people say, well, you know, Remember the quote Mr. Hamilton used to quote all the time. You know, if I died in the arms of a ugly woman, I'd still go to heaven, that man. Um, well, a lot of people, then they stop here. They don't want to know what the rest of Ephesians 2 says because verse 10 clarifies what Paul meant. It says, for we are his workmanship. We're created. We are like a table, like a, you know, we're a, a piece of furniture that's been put together. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So we are brought up, quickened from the dead, brought to life, and created in Christ Jesus unto good works, to do good works. Which, and this is the key, which God hath ordained that we should walk in them. And this is where prayer comes in. If we aren't seeking God's will for our life, we're creating our own works. We're trying to do our own thing. And God says, I already ordained works for you. And they're going to be for my glory and not yours. That's why I really like this book I've been reading. Because 
This man, God did put it on his heart to start something. But it didn't start the way he thought. God brought it completely about without man doing it. And that's what it should always be about for us. We shouldn't be trying to make something happen because it's not about us. He's already foreordained that we would do great works, that we would do good works, and that we would be able to walk in those works. But it's all in the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do it in our flesh. When we do it in our flesh, let me tell you, it's happened to me in the last year and a half. I feel like I'm the worst husband, the worst person in the world because I fail. I've gotten to the end of myself and I found out, yeah, you can't really do anything. But I still haven't found the end of God, so why don't I trust Him and let Him guide me? I want to sing, a, or not sing, you don't want me to sing. Uh, <laughs> I want to read a, a hymn that I really love. It's Jesus Paid It All. I think we've all heard it before, but maybe it would be a good reminder. When I hear this song played, I just can't help but almost fall into tears thinking about what Christ did for me. When I hear songs magnifying Christ Jesus for what he did, I can't but help to want to express with all my heart how much I love him. And that's why sometimes when I look around trying not to disrupt what the Lord's doing in my heart through worship, I feel disturbed because I look around and some look like they're trying their best to not do anything. They look dead. And maybe some are, maybe some just need a reminder. Maybe some of us have forgotten. So this is what it says in uh, the first part. It says, I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. And the refrain says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, and he washed it white as snow. Second verse says, For nothing good I ha have I, whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. And now, complete in him, my robe his righteousness. Close sheltered neath his side, I'm divinely blessed. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper spots and melt the heart of stone. Some think that's leopards. I thought it was that for my whole life. So I read the... <laughs> but either way, he could change either. The fifth says, When my dying bed, when from my dying bed my ransomed soul shall rise, Jesus say, died my soul to save, shall rend the vaulted skies. And when before the throne I stand in him complete, I'll lay my trophies down, all down at Jesus' feet. All we've done is for Christ. It's not for us. And if it's in Christ, then we have no boast. It's all about Him. And that's the difference between somebody that is running around trying to create something and just waiting on God and waiting for God. There's a difference. Waiting for God is a lot harder than waiting on God because a lot of times we say waiting on God to do something but many times we say waiting for God when we don't have 
any money to do something. When we're thinking, well, I'm waiting on God for breakfast, that's a lot different than waiting on God to give me direction. Many times we, we change it. But we should be waiting on God for direction just as much as for our daily bread. We're almost done, I promise. I know it's getting late and it's Wednesday night. I figured I had to compete with Jake, so... Um, <laughs> no offense, Jake. I like your messages. They don't put me to sleep at all. <laughs> okay, Jeremiah 17 to, to finish up. Jeremiah 17. We already read some of this already, but Jeremiah 17, 7 through 10. This is the opposite this is what happens when we choose to trust in the Lord. This is what happens when we decide, you know what? Man doesn't have the solution. Nature doesn't have the solution. God does. When we decide to put, make a stand on absolute versus relative. It says, Blessed is the man that trusts in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be a tree. Again, I've already quoted some of this. He shall be a tree planted by the waters and that spreads out her roots by the river and shall not see when heat comes. You remember before it said in verse um, 6, they will not see when the good comes. That's the wicked, those who trust in man. But here it says we won't see when the hard times come. Not saying that we won't feel it sometimes, but it won't scare us. It won't put us in disarray. Oh, God, I'm going to blame God. Why? If our trust is in God, who is infinite and absolute, can we rely on His Word? Yes. We don't need to be afraid of the heat. Because it says right here, but her leaf shall be green and shall not be careful in the year of drought. It's not going to be like, oh, I better, the leaf isn't going to shrivel up a little so it uses less water. That's what it means. It means the leaf will just be bright green and will be huge and the exact size that that leaf should be. It doesn't matter the drought because the tree's not putting its faith in the weather. Its faith is in the stream. Just like us. Where's the rivers of living water? Jesus is our source, our spring, our well. We don't have to be careful in the year of drought or when the times of hard come. Because hard does come, but that's so that we can experience the faithfulness of God, not so that we run around blaming God. That's the difference between trusting God and trusting man. If we trust man, we make our own plans. We run around, when it doesn't work, we say, God, you said, but... You didn't do it. It's your fault. And he's looking back at us. Did you ask me? Did you seek my counsel? No. But when we seek God, and we find out his will, and the hard times come, we say, well, God, I trusted you, so... I'm not saying it's easy, because I've experienced that. When I've said, I will trust you, and it seems like the stream might be drying up. Um... But God was faithful. The stream didn't dry up. The weather didn't change it. 
says, will not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. Are we ceasing in our fruit yielding? I hope not. Because we are all called to give forth fruit. If you remember the time that Jesus cursed the tree, it was because it didn't bring forth fruit. It looked pretty. It acted pretty. But it didn't bring forth fruit. And that's what we're called. We're all called to bring forth fruit. We're not all apples. We're not all oranges. But we all bring forth fruit. And the fruits of the Spirit. And this is a part of the body. Those fruits help one another too. Just like Mr. Neely was talking about, we all supply what is necessary to make beautiful the body of Christ. And this is the end of that verse. To be careful, it says in verse 9. I already quoted it, but... Now you get to see that it's actually in the Bible and I didn't just make it up. And Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. That's why we must seek God because we can be led astray. That's why the Word of God must be our source. We can't run around and decide that, well, I'm just going to trust everything my church preaches. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't trust our pastor, but we should know what the Word says, too. And if we have issue, we should be willing to go talk to our pastor. What? I'm reading this. How does this apply to what you taught last week or whatever? But we need to know the, the truth of the Word for ourselves. We can't just rely on our parents or our grandparents, our spouse, we all have a responsibility to know the Word. And prayer, again, it, it comes back to prayer. That's really how God's going to get the glory. If we are truly treating God as everything, then we can't help but come to Him in prayer at all times. And to prove that God does things even in the midst of hard times, I want to read a quote from, of all places, Charisma Magazine. I get it all the time. Uh, no. <laughs> I actually just saw this article, and I, this, what this person said really um, shows that God, God will do His work in the midst of the worst places in the world. This is a quote from a leader in Aleppo, Syria. And he's talking about there were 10 or 11 Christians that were beheaded right before this happened. He says, these things have been very hard on me because he was a leader. He, he had trained these men. He said, what wrong did these people do to deserve to die? They didn't. They were following Christ with all their heart. What is happening is more and more people are being saved. The ministry is growing and growing. In the past, we used to pray to have one person from a Muslim background come to the Lord. It says, now there are so many, we can barely handle all the work among them. Why? 
Because Christians decided to stand up in the midst of the worst circumstances and proclaim Jesus with their lives and with their words. We can't just live in front of people and expect them to know who Jesus is. They're just going to be saying, oh, you're, you're a pretty good person. Because we live in a world like that where everyone's trying to be good. We must take courage and speak truth and love the Lord with all our heart. Because if we try to live the Christian life out of duty, we will fail. We must live the Christian life out of love for Jesus Christ. He must be everything to us because if He isn't, then when the hard times come, we're going to be the ones in Aleppo that say, we don't love Jesus anymore. Just don't decapitate us because it's too hard. Instead, we should be like these men. That I don't know how long these men were Christians, but they were willing to give their life for Christ. And because of that, the people around them were saying, Wow, you're not afraid to die for what you believe. And the, Muslim, the secular Muslims there are all terrified. They want out because they aren't actually practicing full Islam, despite what they might say. Um, so I just want to encourage everyone here, myself included, that we don't forget what Christ did for us. What we were how wicked we were because that's that's how the devil creeps in and makes you feel like you can attain to something that's how he creeps in and gives you causes pride to swell up because all of us have to deal with pride there's not a single person all it takes is a little baby to make you realize how prideful you are um, <laughs> I know now one day Thomas will know maybe <laughs> uh, but I just hope that and pray that we don't forget what Jesus did because that is the greatest gift that man has ever received. And it wasn't based on our merit. It was based on the love of Christ and what he did on the cross.